Welcome to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bible Teacher of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn about our work to make Christ known among the nations, go to traincpe.org. Or to discover more about our radio ministry and our fellowship in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Now to God's Word for today, we listen in to an introduction and message first introduced years ago. David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51 reveals the pathway that true confession produced by the Holy Spirit takes in one's heart. It begins with God confronting us for a sin. That sin opens a window for us through which we see a whole host of sins, and then we see that these sins are against God Himself. And when we see this, we cry out like David did for the multitude of God's mercies to come and take that sin away. Listen today to the progress of confession and ask yourself if you've known a true confession of sin. The reason that David pleads for all of God's attributes, for all of his cleansing, is that he begins to see the shadow of all of his sin. He needs all of God's attributes for all of his cleansing because he begins to get a peek at all of his sin. And we talked about this last week as well. The pathway to this honest, deep confession of sin was first he saw one sin. This is how God usually works in our life. God takes one point of failure in our life that just somehow, for whatever reason, crushes us and pierces to the heart. He gets his sword in through one point, and there he brings us under conviction. These were grievous sins. We'd all identify these were grievous sins, but there was this one moment when all of a sudden God said, I see it, David, and it opened up that one sin or that one session of sin a moment of comprehension of endless sins. And not only does David see coveting in this one moment, but he sees coveting all through his life. In this moment, he not only sees his deceitful ways in this one moment, but he sees deceitfulness throughout his life and sins that are tainted in his deceitfulness. And he sees that he has lived with an adulterous spirit and he sees that he has lived with a murderous heart and he sees murder and adultery and coveting and lying and All this all through his life, and sins come pouring into him. So first he says, in a sense, this is not the order, but this is how the order goes in terms of the grammar here. He prays, God, I see my sin. And then he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. He says, my sin is always before me. That's that one sin. Then he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. Multiple sins. They start seeing coming into his life. I don't know what was the one sin that awakened you to the need of a Savior to come and forgive your sin. I don't know what your one sin was. I know some, some of you have shared with me. I know what mine was. I remember when God showed me my sin. I was a pretty good kid. I read through the Bible when I was in eighth grade all the way through. Pretty good. I was a regular Pharisee. I think I was sincere in my Phariseeism. I wanted to be a good person. I also wanted to get a head start on everybody. I was competitive. I realized I wasn't a good enough athlete to be excel in athletics. So I thought, I'll excel in spirituality. I'll read my Bible. I'll be better than everybody else. I'll do more good things than everybody else. And actually, I did pretty good at it. And I was pretty proud about it. One time in church, I was sitting at the end of a pew, and there were two girls. It was my sister and her good friend, and they were going to be singing a duet. It was the time of the service when it was announced that they would come up and sing. I had to get out of the way to have them get up. I could have just pulled my knees aside and let them walk through. Instead, I stood up where they were, And then, instead of just stepping out in the pew, I could have just stepped out and let them come through, I stepped out and I pirouetted full body all the way around like this. And then I turned my hand down and showed them the way out. 
You should have heard what my mother said when we were driving home in the car that day. <laughs> I've never been more ashamed of you. Such pride. Well, she was right, it was pride, but I still didn't see it. I was excelling. I began reading my Bible every single day, excelling. I really question, I don't know, I don't know the exact moment in time, but I question whether I was saved or born again during those moments. I think the moment came when I was about 17 years old. I was sitting in a pew and there was an old man preaching in some kind of extended services in our church. We would call them evangelistic services, but they weren't. They were like deeper life services. Bill Berg was his name. He had a palsied voice. And he was speaking from the book of Exodus. And I was praying for lost people that they might find salvation. I wasn't listening. I was praying. As I was praying, I don't know how to explain this to you, but I had a vision or a thought. I think it was a vision that God gave me. Some penetrating thing that took life in my heart and my mind of hell. And I saw all the agony of hell and the darkness of hell and the suffering of hell and the misery of hell. And I started to cry. And I said, God, take this image of hell away from me. Now remember, I'm praying for lost people that they might be saved. I said, take this vision from me, God. I can't handle this vision of hell. And somehow God spoke to my heart in that moment and said, Joel, you're wrong. This is not hell. This is your proud wicked heart and when that moment was revealed to me or spoken to me all of a sudden I saw everything that I'd done all my reading of the Bible all my religious activity even the prayer I was praying everything I'd done as nothing but a stamp of my own self pride and all the other things I'd done in my life began to break forward with me and I saw that there was nothing and there was no good Christian that could push back all that other sin and I remember the moment I remember what I prayed I prayed, oh God, forgive me. Oh God, forgive me. I don't even want to be Joel Van Hoogen. I forsake myself. That's the one thing I've been living for, was myself, even in my religion. I forsake myself. And so God shows us our sin, our one sin first. That was my pride. And then after that, God brings into us a flood of identification that I've sinned all over my life. And then here was the next moment. Here's the next thing that David saw. It just keeps pouring out. It keeps revealing itself. It's what happened in my life. I think it's what happens in your life as well. He sees his sin. Then he sees his multitude of sins. And then all of a sudden he realizes that this sin and these sins are ultimately against God himself. It's God that he's sinned against. That's the final audacity and horror of any sin you've ever committed. You've struck a blow in the face of God. All of your pride, all of your stubbornness, all of your willfulness, all of your rebellion is a blow against God. Yes, other people suffer from your sins, but ultimately, your sins are a strike against the glory of God, the God of all goodness who loves us. And David comes to term with this as his sin, that it was an action against God. And for a moment, with the sin in his hand still, and face to face with God, David can think of nothing else but God's presence forsaken in his life. He can think of nothing else but God's holiness outraged by his action. He can think of nothing else but God's supreme love being scorned and turned away from by his own actions. Against you and you only have I sinned, he says, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be just, basically, when you judge me. David comes to terms with his sins as an action against God, and at that moment, 
he realizes nothing else but God's work of saving grace in his life will change it, will take it away. Just a really quick note here, that another thing that I think David saw was that God so identifies himself with his creation that a sin against his creation is a sin against him. That God identifies himself and he, he reveals something of himself in all of creation and all of nature. And when you despise it and you do abuse it, you're not just despising nature and creation. You're disputing and you're abusing God. God so identifies with men that he's made in his image, who he's made to be special recipients of his glory, that when you sin against them or when you tempt them and try to bring them into sin, and when you seek to bring a marring of the nature of God or the image of God upon their life, that you are actually assaulting the very image of God. Your attack is against God himself. Isn't that what Satan was doing in the garden? Wasn't Satan trying to, at that moment of time, trying to deface the image of God in the heart and lives of men? Wasn't that Satan when he sought to tempt men, seeking to draw them away from the place of the goodness and glory of God? And when you act to sin against men, or you take part in trying to tempt people and lure people into some kind of sin and some kind of compromise, whose place are you acting in? What role are you carrying out? Aren't you becoming a companion with the devil himself? And isn't that, above everything else, a sin against God? It happens when kids are really young. You know, they get a little brother or sister. This is how, by the way, how is it that little kids know that they're sinners? I had to go through quite an experience. We stumbled upon our son one time praying when he was three years old. He was saying, Jesus, cleanse me from my dirty, dirty heart. Come into heart and make me clean. We said, well, we'll have to wait until he's an adult to see whether he really understood what he's saying. He still defaults back to that confession. He remembers it, although he remembers very little about being three years old, but that confession as a time when he gave his life to Christ. How does that little boy know that? Well, who knows? Already, as a little boy, he seeks to deface the image of God in his little sister, just to constantly bother her. And also, he tries to compromise her in his own sins. He does something wrong, and then he wants to share it with her and have her do it with him, right? It's in our nature. It's what we are. It's drawn from the one who has martyred himself, Satan, in our sins, David sees it. He sees it in a horrific way. I have a sin. I have multiple sins. And my sins have been against you, God. My sins have been against you. The fourth and final step here in realizing his sin and understanding it more fully is he becomes convicted not only of sin and then sins and then a sin against a loving and eternal God, but then he sees that this sin rises out of his own heart, out of his own nature, and he says, I was conceived in sin. Sin is in me. It's not the result of some adverse consequences on my life. It's not the result of some poor environment. It got this. It's not because the situation overwhelmed me and I sinned. God, it is in me. It's in my heart. He says, surely in iniquity I was conceived in my mother's womb. And I just want you to know that, that David is not blaming his mother for his sin. He's not saying it's my parents' fault. David is ultimately simply blaming his own corrupt nature. He's not saying it's because of my genes. He's not saying it's because of my nationality. He's not saying it's because of some way that he was raised and what his parents exposed him to. David is basically saying the fault to all this ultimately lies in me and my corrupt nature and who I am. So forth, he sees his sin. He sees many sins. He sees sins against an eternal God of holy love and he sees that that sin rises out of his own heart. 
Where did that come from? And he sees it came from me and who I am. So instead of just seeing an act of coveting, an act of lust, he sees a coveting and lustful heart. Instead of seeing an act of adultery, he sees an adulterous nature. Instead of seeing one murder only, he sees a murderous and lying heart. Not only a sin, not even a big sin, not even a group of big sins, not just many sins, but a nature that is a fountain of sin. He sees himself. And so everywhere that David looks, when he looks without, when he looks at his hand, when he looks at his feet, when he looks at his heart, he sees sin, sin, and more sin. And there is no hope, now he realizes, in any religious act, in any edict, in any judgments he makes from here on out, there's no hope in any attempt to do better, any attempt to be good. There's no hope in thinking the right thoughts and discovering the right truths. The only thing that will take away his wrong and erase them from his life is everything that God is. And so we're right back to where we began, right? We're right back to where he began in the expression of hope. God, have mercy on me. God, your mercy, your grace, your loving kindness, all that you are. That's all that there can be to take away this in me. Thanks for joining us today at the Bread of Life. Our ministry is brought to you by the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its Missions Fellowship, the Bread of Life in Boise, Idaho. It's our purpose to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, personal discipleship, and the planting of new churches around the world. God is blessing and multiplying this work. If you'd like to learn more, please go to traincpe.org or contact us at breadoflifeboise.org. The strategy God is using around the world, we want to make available to you. I hope you'll contact us. Now, God bless you until we gather again around the bread of life.